Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, June 6th. We begin with a look at the federal government's action plan to address violence against Indigenous women. We get reaction to the plan from Lynn Grew, CEO of the Native Women's Association of Canada, who explains why her organization is giving the government a failing grade on that document. How much do you know about monkeypox? We catch up with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician, for details on what you need to know about the latest viral outbreak and just how serious of a health risk it is. It's a grim summer ahead for Canadian food banks. That from a new report released on Monday. We get reaction to the report and suggestions on what Calgarians can do to lend a hand to those in need from James McCara, President and CEO of the Calgary Food Bank. And finally, it's another edition of Motivational Monday, a chance to get you motivated today and beyond. This time out, we speak with singer, songwriter, and author Colleen Kelba, who shares her personal story of learning how to inhale. One year ago, the federal government made a national action plan to address violence against Indigenous women. The Native Women's Association of Canada just put out a report card to assess the plan's progress. Joining us this morning is Lynn Grew, CEO of the association, and she joins us to go over what is a failing grade. Good morning to you, Lynn. Well, good morning, and thank you for calling me in this morning. Well, thank you for taking the time. So your association put out this report card of the government's action plans, and uh, quite frankly, it doesn't look good. Can you tell us about the details within the report? Well, the action plan that was put out last year Uh, did not have sufficient detail in it at the time. It did not tell us how they were going to address the 231 calls for justice that were legal imperatives that were set out in the National Inquiry report. So even to assess it was quite difficult. But we, we went through information that we were able to find. There was a lack of transparency. And what we found was that they have not even addressed the 30 or so initiatives and steps that they said they were going to take. So they, they, they've looked at about 16 of the 30. So we're really concerned about what's going on. Why is there such a low priority on this? Why are they not doing their jobs? It's actually three years since the National Inquiry report, report was handed down. So we, we just think that they're at this point, you know, we're, we're wondering what is going on uh, with the government that they're not taking this issue seriously enough. Yeah, I would say everybody's wondering at this point. So can we just go back a little bit, Lynn, when the National Action Plan was originally announced, what were you expecting or hoping to see at that point? Well, we were expecting them to address the 231, like to really to make a list to say, here's the, here's the action that we're going to take, here's how much it's going to cost, and here is when we're going to do it. Obviously, you can't end the genocide in in a, in a year it took a long time for us to get to this point where we are today but we expected to see concrete action with the deliverable clearly set out and the and the the um, you know the budget to go with it etc that's not us saying that that's how the government should do it that was in the national inquiry report now the government today is turning around and saying well we don't know we have to talk a bit more about how we're going to do this what we're going to do why it's three years later, and, and you asked for a report uh, to, to know what you should do. Now you have that information, and you need to act on it. You have counteracted with your own action plan, Lynn, called Our Calls, Our Actions. Can you tell us the details of what's included in that plan and the direction you want to go in? So 
we're a not-for-profit organization. It was pretty hard for us to gather together our own uh, list to say, okay, how can we ourselves take our own action? Uh, we have responsibility for our communities. What can we do? So we took 66 of the actions that we thought would be the best ones for us to act on. So, for example, we, we have started our own healing centre. We have one in Chelsea, and we've uh, managed to... Uh, to uh, have a farm in New Brunswick. So these are two healing centers, just one example of what we're doing. We've put a website up called Safe Passages there where people can go and put information about where uh, they know about a woman that's disappeared or has been murdered so that we can identify the hotspots. So there's a large number of initiatives that we are taking our own initiative to do, uh, you know, with donations in any way that we could best possibly do it. Because this is what the community is asking for. Not just our community, but Canadians Mm -hmm. are also asking for this. And we did a survey just recently, and that survey shows that Canadians feel the government is doing a poor job, they're not moving fast enough, and they need to make it a priority. Lynn, you know, I think just, you know, for all of us, it's it's far more at the forefront this you know we, we heard about the federal government the national action plan despite the fact that it's not the action's not coming it's more you know there's more notice and more attention on the issue of these missing and murdered indigenous women are do we know are, are the you know in terms of stats and numbers are the numbers going down of of the women who are disappearing is is this bringing any attention and 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 results well, it is bringing attention. So we definitely know that more Canadians are aware of what's going on. We saw that in the survey, and we're very pleased about that. And that's due to much due to the media, as a matter of fact, you know, really getting out there and explaining that, uh, what's going on. But the numbers, unfortunately, are not going down. And we just heard uh, just a few weeks ago what's going on with, in Manitoba with three women. So there's a d- disappeared and, uh, you know, uh, murdered actually uh, so we, we we unfortunately are not making progress on that side yet so a lot more has to be done to for our communities to say enough is enough and there's a targeted you know there's a target against indigenous women in this country and it's got to stop so we need help from communities we need help from the police um, everyone you know has a role to play in our society so we're hoping you know to see these changes happen and pressure the government to do the right thing and make it a priority speaking with Lynn Grew a CEO of Native Women's Association of Canada and I'm wondering, uh, Lynn, do you feel like your voice is being heard? Do you feel like you uh, set out your plan called Our Calls, Our Actions? Do you have the ear of the government? Um, I mean, you, we can hear them talking about reconciliation all the time. We hear them talking about their commitments all the time. But honestly, something is going wrong from you know that commitment to those words of reconciliation to the action. They're still spinning around tinkering with it, having meeting after meeting and not taking the action. So there's, there's something they're not hearing in what we're saying and what the community wants. So there's, there's an element missing there. There's more, uh, more work to be done for sure. Lynn, how can we give and maybe just, you know, make a louder voice for the Indigenous community and, and, and get the government to, to maybe move a little more quickly on this? What, what can we yeah. do? I mean, please keep it in the news. Please keep it in the media. I think there was a tremendous amount of media around, uh, you know, the finding of the remains of uh, children from residential school. It really helps, um, you know, social media, media, uh, talk to people that you know, um, you know, write a letter, anything that you can do to help. Uh, we really appreciate it.
We appreciate your time this morning and uh, bringing it up with us. Uh, thanks, Lynn. Thank, thank you, Sue and Andy. Thank you so much. That's Lynn Grew, CEO, Native Women's Association of Canada, online at www.nwac.ca. I can understand the frustration in that, you You're know. You're not kidding. Well, you know, and they always say, don't pine about something, do something about it. So to just say we, we're not interested in the, the government's direction here. To, to craft your own plan is fine. To get together from the, the stakeholders within an organization like the Native Women's Association of Canada, great. But you want to get that... You want to get that sense that you're being heard, that you have an alternative. You're not just saying this isn't good enough. You're putting forward some solutions from people who are in the know. And the frustration would come with doing that work and feeling like you don't have a voice. Some of the stats that, you know, sort of bring it home, four out of five Native women experience some form of violence in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Native women face murder rates more than 10 times the national average. And homicide is the third leading cause of death among Native girls and women aged 10 to 24 fifth leading cause of death for native women aged 25 to 34 i mean something needs to be done we need to continue to talk about this and and the government needs to you know take action on this report the accountability has sure. to be there while it's not a new virus it's certainly not exactly common especially in this part of the world how much do you know about monkeypox with some insight and what we need to know we're joined by dr ted jablonski our on-call family physician good morning to you dr j Good morning. Well, let's start with the origin of monkeypox. Where does it come from? So it did seem to uh, arise in Western Central Africa, and it is endemic in that area. So this is, like you said in the intro, is not new. It's been around in that part of the world for quite some time, but it has only recently sort of spread and now got into Europe, got into North America. How come? How, how How is this happening? Is it just that we're far more, you know, traveling worldwide and we bring these things back to our own countries? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but, but again, if you, it takes one person to, to spread to a, a group of other people and that group spreads to other people. And yes, we are traveling again. And this is probably the perfect timing for something like this to spread around uh, once again. And, and this, again, this is not that new. Every Every few years, something new comes from another part of the world, and we have to deal with it. Now, I will likely not see a case of monkeypox. None of us will likely see, uh, but there is one confirmed case in Alberta as of last week, Friday. So it's possible there will, there will be a very limited outbreak in our province. So I guess we need to be aware of that. Dr. Jablonski, what are the symptoms? How do I know I have monkeypox? Yeah. So just think of, uh, say, like a chicken pox, uh, but ten, times 10. So it's a very nasty viral infection that you are very flu-like to start. But the, the hallmark of it is uh, the pox, which are apparently just really, really nasty. They tend to be very large, tend to leave scars, and they can be in the thousands. So literally covered in these pox. So I guess it, would, it wouldn't be subtle. It would be pretty dramatic if somebody got this, that they would know they have something that isn't, uh, isn't right at all. It, would I get a couple of them and then I could go in and get help? Or is it like I just um, covered in them really quickly? No. So it, it tends to come in, in uh, not in crops, so fairly quickly. The incubation period is actually very long. So it's 5 to 21 days. So, so you could be sick for quite some time before you get the first pox. But in theory, if, you, if somebody did get what looked like pox and they had some contact with somebody who was questionable, there is time to try to manage everything. 
in their case, as well as the cases around all the people who are close contacts, which is really what public health is making. Like we have ability to vaccinate people mm-hmm. around the contact uh, co- contact person. The person themselves are, really is no specific therapy for this. So it's all just supportive care. But can we contain an outbreak? And that's where hopefully we can if we get that one case and identify it and then treat everyone around it. Very limited on time here, but just got a text in from Gail. Is it parents not immunizing their kids? This has nothing to do with, uh, like, so immunization, non-immunization, and any other thing would have nothing to do with this. This is so particular, and uh, the only immunization that would help is a smallpox immunization, of which we're not doing anymore. So really no connection there. Okay, so do we need to really be concerned or is this just, you know, this is really front of mind because we've just gone through a pandemic and, you know, people are talking about it. I feel like there's a lot of worry here for most of us who will probably, as you say, never even experience anyone who has a case like this. I think we absolutely need to be aware of it but not be fearful in any way, shape, or form. You really have to try to get this to some degree. This is not something that's going to sort of tackle you on the street when you're walking around. Because uh, it's know, not airborne, right? Very, you know, very close contact with somebody who has it. Um, so intimate or very close contact. So it's difficult. It doesn't transmit well. So in the general population, we are fine. We don't need to worry. Thanks for shedding some light on it. Appreciate your time, Dr. Jablonski. Okay, you betcha. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. There's a new report out and it shows Canadian food banks are seeing an influx of people experiencing food insecurity, many of whom say they just can't afford to keep up with the rising cost of food, gas and housing. To give us some insight into how dire it is, particularly here in our city, we're joined this morning by James McCara, president and CEO of the Calgary Food Bank. Good morning, James. How are you? I'm great. How about you? Excellent. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Do you have some numbers of just how many people are currently accessing the Calgary Food Bank? Well, given the numbers that we've seen, when you talk about the summer last year, is there were 60,000 lives. We did 20, almost 24,000 hampers last summer. And we're expe- we expect it will probably be another 7% on top of that this year. We're really trending in that way. James, when you talk, you know, outside looking in the food bank situation, to me, and again, this is your world, what you do, to me, it seems like you can't point to one factor for the demand, perhaps the perfect storm? It's It's been the perfect storm for several years now. You've got a, an economic downturn followed by a pandemic. Um, and unfortunately, you've also got some, some activity in, let's call it, policy areas where some of the levers that could be used maybe aren't being used as effectively as possible. So we're, we're telling a story, we're, we're telling Canadians, we're telling Calgarians, this is the reality of what we're experiencing. And yet there are individuals and policy people who say, oh, that can't be true because we just don't want to talk about it. James, uh, the new poll from Food Banks Canada showing hunger and food insecurity increasing right across the country. We are no exception here in the city of Calgary. What are you expecting for this summer and beyond? Well, we we always say that we're the canary in the coal mine. So first in, um, usually the last out. So we think we'll be in this for at least a year. Um, That's the challenging part about it is that when you get to the point of food insecurity, all your other pieces are pretty much there. The, the cost of housing is not going down anytime soon. Um, but we we hope we can help our community get through these difficult times. And what can we do to help as citizens, James, the average Calgarian? 
Well, the average Calgarian can actually look after their neighbor. Um, long been a proponent of a casserole over a fence, meeting your neighbor, finding out what's going on in your community, and not just the glossy outside of it. Uh, making sure that in the case of a food bank, you know, volunteering at the food bank is great, but also volunteer for your favorite organization. You know, it's as we come out of the pandemic, I think we, we need to meet each other again, know that we're in this together, and hopefully that voice will also send um, individuals and entities that have some of the policy levers um, a clear indication that this is not acceptable um, and that as a community we're looking for something changing. James, as you said, it's only together that we can fight hunger and its root causes. Are you a big supporter of the community pantries, et cetera, as well? That they must be, you know, a, a nice little a boost for the Calgary Food Bank in terms of, you know, somebody who might need a little bit of help in a community and aren't yet at the point need to go to the food bank. You know, any way that you can make sure your ends are met, and because we know that cash only goes so far because you're going to have your utilities, you're going to have your rent or your mortgage or whatever it is it's going to be there and whether it's a pantry whether it's a community agency whether it's um community kitchens has some great programs uh, along with the food bank you've got so many great things happening in our community having another feeding program though is not going to address the root causes it's not going to address access to supports for after school care for your kids for affordable transport or affordable accommodation so whenever you can help your neighbor have at her. That's a great way to do it. There's some bigger pieces here. We really need to have the difficult conversation. And unfortunately, the people who can make those changes aren't actually talking to the people who are impacted by this. Well, at least we are have a, some sort of a conversation. We've got the ball rolling, James. Thanks to you and your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you both for this and for getting the word out into the community that we can make a difference. You betcha. That is James McCara, President and CEO of the Calgary Food Bank. Of course, Find out what they do online, calgaryfoodbank.com. You are the rainmaker, the pain. That is Rainmaker by Colleen Kelba, and she is an author and a speaker and an amazing woman. And she's written a book, so this is what we're going to get into. For every single person, man or woman, stuck in an unhealthy love, you can set yourself free. That is the motto of Colleen Kelba, singer, songwriter, and author of the book, Inhale. And Colleen joins us now on this Motivational Monday. Good morning to you. Good morning, Sue. How are you? I'm good. Hey, thanks for getting up nice and early and chatting with us and and helping get uh, our listeners motivated this morning and beyond. Uh, Let's start with a little bit about your book. It's called Inhale. It's described as a shocking memoir. Can you tell us a little bit about the backstory? Well, I had an experience with my partner in my second marriage. He was very mentally ill, um, suffered from bipolar, and... I had an adventure with him that, you know, was an experience and a half <laughs> um, through his suicide attempts and my awakening actually to be okay with letting him go so that I could live. You had to open yourself up, Colleen, a memoir like this, laying it all out on the line. Was there some trepidation? Was there fear of, you know, putting such a personal experience into words? Yes, you know, the questions that I had um, throughout the marriage were like, well, why do you stay and what keeps you there? And at the time, you don't know where you're standing. You don't know the life is going around your head and you're in some sort of trance. And I, I thought I had to talk about why 
and I could only do it in a story to bring people into the feeling, into the emotion, into the experience, so that they can travel that journey with me and come to the answers that fear keeps you there and protection of those you love keeps you there and your own limits keep you there. You called it an awakening. So what what was that like for you? Was there a specific moment or did it come over time? It came over time, but I really knew when it hit me. And it's just when I had absolutely enough, the main message to me was like, I let myself go absolutely and completely for the sake of another. And there's only so much we can do for other people. My My line in the book is you cannot... You cannot help someone else breathe. You're not responsible for them to breathe in life. So I could only take care of myself and my children. And the moment that I decided that person is, that's their story, that's their journey. They were here to help me awaken. And the moment that I realized that was when my whole world opened up. You put your Possibilities opened up. You put yourself out there, Colleen. You you put your thoughts on, you share something like this. I'm wondering what sort of a validation that you did receive from people who have read your work, helping other people. How does that feel and what have you heard? The most uh, empowering and powerful uh, feedback that I got was from the wife of of a psychologist. She said, oh my gosh, after reading the book, I realized that my husband always came home with stress about the patient and although I have a lot of compassion for those that suffer from mental illness, there's a wave of people who are their caregivers, who who are affected directly and indirectly, friends, neighbors, your children. And she's like, I'm going to go home and talk to my husband about them, like who is there to help them? Because I had nobody to help me. I've, at all. I've read the book Inhale. You, I think you write so beautifully. It's almost like you're writing lyrics to a song when you write your mm-hmm. book. So how did you motivate yourself then and how do you motivate yourself now? I fulfill my dreams and I encourage other people to fulfill their dreams. And the more that they do and tap into their gifts and talents, the more powerful they become, the more enlightened they become, the more aware you become. And those gifts and talents throughout that journey especially were the things that I didn't even realize I was leaning on to help me exist throughout that experience. But every time that I dug into them empowered me a little bit more. And that is what I do now. I am motivated by my dreams. I am motivated by the one thing that I fear the most, and that's regret. So if I'm going to regret not doing it, then that's what I'm going to do right now. (laughs) A very personal book about your struggle. And I'm wondering if this is something that opened your eyes in the sense that people may have had no idea what you were going through, that the person next to you has their own struggles, and we all have something we're against. Is that something that came to mind while you were penning this book? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I had no idea what I was in until I started writing. And it was a few years after that I, you know, left my spouse at the time. I didn't realize what I was going through myself until I started to open up, talk about it, write about it. And it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> what did I just go through? <laughs> so you don't know what everybody, you don't know the story behind everybody. And, and you 
when we open our eyes to that, we can become more compassionate, we can become more aware, and we can really become more forgiving of those who are the the villains in our story or the, the challenge makers in our story. I have a whole new perception of that as well. I, I love and forgive that person who held me back because he showed me my way. I love your line. Be a better person. Yeah, I I love the line. You you cannot breathe life into someone refusing to inhale. So, Mm -hmm. if you had some tips to offer our listeners this morning, Colleen, what would you say to to motivate them today and beyond? Especially someone maybe who's in a tough place like you were. Oh, to take a deep breath, just to take a deep breath and just observe where you are right now. Uncover your gifts and talents because we think we are not talented or creative, but those are the little things we do on the daily that bring us joy. Sit, sit with them, like even making cookies or, you know, cleaning and dusting or whatever. Those things give you that moment to breathe, to refocus, and then trust and live those dreams. I left with absolutely nothing when I left this person and it felt like I was the strongest person in the world because I had my guitar, I had my suitcase, and that's all I needed to move forward. And it, it was nothing to fear. Colleen, where can we pick up the book? You can pick it up with Chapters, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can find it on my website and ColleenSongs.com. And, um, yeah, let me know. I'll send you a copy. Wow, incredible. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both so much. That is Colleen Kelba, singer, songwriter, and author of the book Inhale. You can find out more of what she's all about online, ColleenSongs.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.